um, the moral attributes of God. The moral attributes of God. God is a person. God makes choices. And because of the choices that God has made, he has a particular kind of character. Okay, And we call this character his moral attributes or his moral characteristics. Those characteristics which he has because he chooses to have them. Now, we will see that there are some of these that are frequently confused with the metaphysical characteristics of God. Some people describe some of these things that are actually uh, moral attributes. They describe them as metaphysical attributes, as if God had them because he was God, rather than God has them because he chooses to have them. Okay? Now, we need to be careful not to confuse these things. So, the first and foremost, which is what we looked at this morning, is that God fulfills all of his obligation, or what we call love. <laughs> Board here is all. Can I erase this? As long as I hear the right voice. Voice of authority. Okay, the first of which is love. Now, inasmuch as love is our obligation as moral beings, and that it is God's obligation as well, inasmuch as it is the obligation of moral beings to love, that is, to will the highest good of God and his universe in its relative order, then we can say that God is living constantly in love because he is always making this choice. His motive is only for the highest well-being, first of himself and then of the universe that he has created. Okay? It, it would be wrong for him to put our highest well-being before his own because that would be saying that we are the most valuable beings in the universe. And so there's nothing wrong with his putting his highest well-being first. Nothing wrong with that. It's just honest. He's not being selfish or egotistical or anything. He's just being honest. But when he says, you should worship me, he's not saying something that's uh, just because he's uh, greedy after, after worship as if he were egotistical or something. He's saying what's honest to say. You need to worship me. And what else can he say? I'm not important? <laughs> he can't do that. Okay? So then, um, we have to understand that when God asks or even demands praise of us, is that all he's asking us to do is be honest with, with who he really is. So then, when God fulfills this obligation that he senses to, be, to will his own highest good and the highest well-being of the universe, he lives in what we call love, what we commonly call love, that choice. Okay, so then any other moral attribute is going to be an attribute of this because it is our basic obligation, and it is God's basic obligation. So when we talk about the rest of these, of which I'm going to name six, and Gordon will speak of these as well, um, the rest of these are not only attributes of God, but they can also be spoken of as attributes of love. Some of you have seen the book by Charles Finney, Attributes of Love. Okay? Well, that's the, the characteristics of love will come out in specific ways. And if you look at it carefully, you'll see that all of the character, moral characteristics of God that we commonly speak of, the fact that he's merciful, the fact that he's holy, are all actually attributes of love. It's because he's loving... At the time, if he's going to be loving, he's also going to have to be merciful. If he's going to be loving, he's also going to have to be just. If he's going to be loving, he's also going to have to be truthful. Because you can't be 
willing the highest good for someone and communicating falsehood to them. You can't do that. So if you're going to love, you also have to be truthful. This list also, by the way, will provide a, uh, a little checklist for us to check our own lives to see whether we're loving. You can't say that you're loving and be unholy. You can't say that you're loving and be unjust or unfair in your treatment of other people. You can't be, say that you're loving and, uh, and not be merciful, okay? which means quick to forgive, slow to anger. Okay? Attribute means a characteristic. Yeah. Okay? So these are God's moral characteristics. That, that what he has because he chooses to have them. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. So the first one we want to look at, apart from love, we've already looked at love this morning. Spent a whole, whatever, two hours or something on love. So we won't go too deeply into that. But the first characteristic under this that we want to talk about is holiness. Or, God is holy. Let's put that under there if you want. God is holy. Now, this is very frequently confused with God's metaphysics. Because the Bible says God is holy, sometimes we get that confused just in the same way that we get God is love or God is light. We get that confused and think it's metaphysical when it's really moral. Um, in the same way, sometimes when it says God is holy, we sometimes get an impression... And I, it looked like you weren't okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. thought something was wrong back there. Hmm? Uh, very frequently, people, when they say God is holy, uh, will speak of his holiness almost as if it were an, a natural attribute, that that's something that God is simply because he is, and not something that he chooses. Okay? Well, all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see us that we are um, asked, we are enjoined to, to praise God because of his holiness. Okay? Now, there, if it were part of his metaphysical attributes, there would be no reason to praise God for his holiness. Okay? I can't get excited in God about the things that are natural attributes. I can get excited in the sense that I can say, thank you, God, that you have power. But the thing that I really get excited about and I can really praise him for is the fact that he uses his power in a loving way. But to wor the worship of sheer power, just for the sake of power, is weird. You see? But if God is powerful, and I say, thank you, Lord, that you are powerful and you use that power to be able to minister to people, to heal people's lives, to direct their lives, and so forth. I can get excited about the second part, but I can't get excited just about the fact that God has power. You see? Because what if God had power, but he used it the wrong way? Would I be excited about his power then? You see, so it's not the power in itself that we worship, it's the way God uses his power. So when we worship, we worship in respect to God's moral attributes. Okay? And if, it's, if his natural attributes get brought into the worship, it's in respect to how he uses, it by his choices, his natural attributes. You understand? Thank you that you've used your power uh, in creating the world, you see. But what we're talking about, actually, is it was a, a wonderful thing that he did in committing himself to us when he created the world, and et cetera, et cetera. It was a moral thing that he did. What is holiness? Holiness, as it is commonly understood, is that idea about God that he has never sinned. 
But not only that he has never sinned, that's just saying that he's always been holy, but he is holy now. That right now, he is choosing to live up to all of the knowledge that he has of what is right and wrong. See, this is, this is very much inseparable from love. Because love is basically to fulfill your obligation towards God and towards the universe, and holiness is to live up to all the knowledge that you have of what is right and wrong, and to always choose to do that which is right. Now, the Bible commands us to be holy as God is holy. How do you do that? Okay. Well, it couldn't mean to the extent because we're not the kind of being that God is. So it must mean in the manner that God is holy. It also says you shall be holy because I am holy. It's a rather interesting, interesting thing. You shall be holy in all manner of conversation or daily conduct, the word means. You shall be holy in all your daily conduct. You can run down references on the word holy. That's for your private concordance. Okay? The work of your private concordance while you're reading. But it says you shall be holy in all manner of daily conduct, indicating that it's a choice that you make. It's not something that you are. It's a choice that you make in your daily conduct to respond the way God responds, and that is to live up to the knowledge that you have of what is right and wrong and choose to do that which is right. God has a lot more knowledge than we have. <laughs> the understatement of the year. Um, there's a lot, a lot more knowledge than we have of what is right and wrong. There's a lot more knowledge than we have generally, period. But he has a lot more knowledge than we have of what is right and wrong, and so he is responsible for much more than we are. But as we live up to the knowledge that we have of what is right and wrong, we as well can be holy as he is holy. In the manner, not to the extent, but in the manner. No, I'm not talking about loving. I'm talking about worshiping. It, yeah, it's a part of love, but it's, it's not. Uh, it, it's part of our obligation, but it's not the basis for our obligation. This morning I was talking for, about what is the basis of our moral obligation, and we are obligated by the fact that God is valuable. You understand? But our response of worship to Him will come because He is uh, has a certain character morally, rather than because He has a certain character metaphysically. still doesn't click? Well, maybe we can talk about it later. Just write it down and we'll uh, try to handle it at the end of the lecture. Yeah. Um, there are other phrases that are somewhat like uh, the one I quoted, you shall be holy, um, as the Lord is holy. Now, there are phrases like, you shall be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That obviously does not refer to the extent, but refers to the manner. And it, it states the manner right before that. That is, that God loves without any distinction. That is, he gives the rain to the just and the unjust. Okay? He causes the sun to shine, the just, the unjust. He doesn't love just those that love him like the publicans do. He loves those that don't love him as well. You see? Um, you get that? You know the, the passage I'm talking about in uh, Matthew 6? Okay, so then that's the last portion of, of Matthew 6. And when it says, You shall therefore be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, it's talking about the manner in which he is perfect and not the extent 
we can't be, we don't have the same responsibilities that he has because we're not the same kinds of beings. We don't have the same capacity. But we can be perfect in the same manner that he is perfect. See? Manner. Living up to all the, um, all the light that we have of what is right and wrong and choosing to do what we know is right. We can do that, by the way. Commandment, uh, Deuteronomy 30, it says, the commandment that you've been commanded this day is not too hard for you. And then in verse, that's in verse 11. And in verse 14, it says, you can do it. Deuteronomy 30. Um, well, if God commands us to be holy, then how do we fulfill that command? By faith? You mean faith is, faith is what? Faith is a choice? Okay. It, part of that is going to be faith. It's going to be trust. Okay. But if, you trust, if you say you're trusting in the Lord, and then you're choosing to do that which you know is wrong, are you holy? No. Okay, but uh, faith is a definite part of that because if you are actually trusting in the Lord and you have that relationship with Him where you want to do what He says, then you will live up to the knowledge that you have and thus you will be holy. If you continue in a faith relationship with God, you will, the, the result will be that you will be holy, not by some mystical, magical state happening to you, but that in your relationship with Him, as He says, please do this, you'll do it. And then as you do that, you'll be being obedient and then that will be your holiness. You'll be choosing to live like he lives. Yeah, faith has a lot to do with it. And uh, we don't struggle and sweat and strain uh, to be holy. We simply have to choose to fulfill our obligation. And, uh, the way we get changed is by having... Uh, yeah, well, let's, let me talk about that for a second. Um, Charles Finney is very commonly misunderstood at this point. Dear old Charlie. Um, in that a lot of people think that Charles Finney in his moral government is talking about in sanctification is talking about you take your little will screw and you go and you sanctify yourself. Now the Bible does talk about sanctifying yourself. But many people get the, the impression that Charles Finney is saying that by gritting your teeth and making the right choices you can be sanctified. You see? And that's not what he says at all if you read him very carefully. Uh, most people get bored with the section that talks about the offices of Jesus. He has 51 of them or something like that. And, and the whole thing that he's pointing out is that as you have a revelation of the character of Jesus, then in respect to sin, you're not going to have any trouble resisting it. You see? You have to be really careful when you're reading that, the sanctification section not to zero in on just the, the will part of it. Yes, he says you are to choose to do what you know is right, but the way that you receive strength to overcome your habits from, the, from your past life and the temptation that's in the world is by receiving a revelation of Jesus and who he is in all of his fullness, and as you see Jesus as your guide, as you see him as your lover, as you see him as your captain, as you see him as your sanctifier, as you see him as holy, as you see him as merciful, and as you see him, then you're not going to have problems with sin. Okay? And he said sanctification happens through faith. That's his point all the way through. Okay? So that's um, it's a good point that you brought up, Mario. But uh, sometimes we just get, when we hear moral government, we think that we, we, we become sanctified by taking our will screw and going, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You know, and that's not the way it works. It's I will because I've had a revelation of him. This is the way I'm going to be. You see? I receive a revelation of the holiness of Jesus. 
Then when I'm presented with temptation, I look at it and I go, Bleh. you see? Not because I choose to go, but because I've had a revelation of Jesus. Okay? Takes all the sweat out of sanctification. Please remember that when you're hearing about moral government, you're hearing about a particular aspect of theology, and that is the responsibility of man. That will be stressed. You mustn't forget about the grace of God. <laughs> that happens sometimes to people that come out of SOEs. They, they come out a little bit distorted. They, they think that they've got to do everything with their responsibility and forget that, that uh, all they have to do is take the first step, and God in his grace will give them the strength to handle the rest of it. It's a cooperation, folks. It's a relationship. It's not a... You know, one-sided, I'm going to do it all myself. No. God doesn't require that of us. Isn't that neat? <laughs> okay, um, go on. God is righteous or just. Dinner's like a good book. keeps coming back to me. <laughs> Justice or righteousness is a part of God's moral attributes. That is, that in respect to every moral being, every moral being, he constantly and consistently treats them fairly in accordance with the law. There is no partiality with God and in respect to law, every moral being is treated exactly as the law says. And he's never arbitrary. Every moral being gets exactly what they deserve. Never arbitrary. Of course, the word arbitrary means against law. Yeah, so. He's <laughs> redundant there. He is just. Of course, we have to deal with these kind of things when we, with the justice of God when we talk about things like why do the innocent suffer? There are a lot of questions that come up like that that center on the justice of God. Why did God let this happen to me? You see? Well, the question is, did he or did he not? Before you assume that God did this to you. <laughs> the question is, did he or did he not? You can't automatically assume that. But then um, most of the questions that people bring from the world about God is in respect to his justice. It's an interesting proverb that says, a man's foolishness subverts his own way and then his heart rages against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? A man's foolishness, and foolishness in the, in the book of Proverbs is sin, um, a man's foolishness subverts his own way and then his heart rages against the Lord. You see? The Bible also says in Proverbs that wicked men do not understand justice, but those that seek the Lord understand all things. Wicked men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. I was talking recently with a fellow that, well, not too recently, it was last, <laughs> last May, as a matter of fact. Um, time goes awfully fast. Um, I was talking with a fellow when I was in the States last, and he had a lot of trouble seeing that justice was a part of love. And the reason that he had trouble seeing that was because of the way he was living. You see? Because it's very difficult, if you want to accept justice as a part of love, to live in an unholy fashion. You see? 
Because then, if you accept justice as, part of, as a part of love, it points its little finger at you and says, you are guilty. <laughs> you say? Justice can also point its finger at you and say, you are free. Justice can do that, too. But uh, in this case, it was justice was pointing its little finger at him and saying, you are guilty. And so he didn't want to accept the idea that justice uh, was a part of love. And as well as that, he didn't want to accept the idea that discipline was a part of love. You see? Because, of course, if you're living the way you want to live, you don't want God stepping into your life and disciplining you. Now, do you? <laughs> if you want to live in your selfishness. And so um, he was pacing back and forth. It was a real... Um, tense time the whole four days I went into a I almost went into a depression I fought a depression for about a month and a half after that but um, he's pacing back and forth and, and uh, I said you know the Bible also says that there's another reason besides intellectually that you would have with the fact that God would discipline people in his justice you see? and that is it's, um, the Bible says that wicked men do not understand justice <laughs> he doesn't like that <laughs> you can imagine because you know what I was saying you know how you're living. Um, fortunately, we had the kind of relationship where um, it could handle, we could handle those kind of things. You know? And uh, he got a little bit upset. A few minutes later, he was pacing back and forth, and he came over to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he began to cry, and he said, Michael, you don't know how many times, if I hadn't been able to talk with you, that I would have committed suicide. And, uh, <laughs> so, fall apart. And, uh, so that was, the whole four days were like that. Four days of, all the time. And this guy never, living as an, ex as an existentialist, as trying to live as an honest existentialist, never says anything trivial. When he, when he can talk, trivial talk when he's with a group of people because he doesn't want to bring up things. But when he was with me, he never said anything trivial. The weather, food, and uh, all that aside, he, he wanted to talk about what was going on in me and what was going on in him and what was happening with God and him. And, phew. Ay, ay, ay. So, hardly made it through the four days, but... Um, right now, well, uh, he's in England now studying. So, um, may go over and see him sometime. I don't know exactly how he's doing. Still living as an existentialist, I believe. Yep. Anywho, uh, yes, we're talking about justice. Um, so most of the problems that come in from people's lives as far as, as far as their being unbelievers will center in on God's justice. God is unfair. Because if you can find a little bit of unfairness, partiality in God, see, then you have a right not to serve Him. See, you have a right not to submit to Him, not to love Him, not to worship Him. If you think you can find a little bit of unfairness in God, and so that will be attacked all the time. See? If God is a little bit partial, if God is a little bit arbitrary, if God is a little bit unjust, see? then you have a reason to attack God. Can you see why the doctrine... Uh, of, of unconditional election uh, becomes such a problem to people. God shows before, the idea of unconditional election is the idea that God shows before the foundation of the world that certain people were going to be saved and others were going to be lost. Can you see why people would reject a God like that? No. I mean, if you see a little bit of injustice in God, of course you don't want to serve him. Okay? God is not like that. Hallelujah. Okay? God is just in all of his ways and kind in all of his doings. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. Mm. Just in all his ways and kind in all of his doings is Psalm 147, or is it 145? 145? 100, 
17. Yeah, I knew it has seven in it someplace. 145.17, Psalms. <laughs> Jude, 145.17. Try <laughs> to so put four chapters on it. I guess I can put 145 chapters on it. Okay? So then, that is that God treats every single person fairly. So when the Bible says things like, um, all unrighteousness is sin, it's talking about a choice. Not a state of being. It's talking about a choice. All unrighteousness, to be unfair, to be contrary to law or arbitrary in any action that you make is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. Okay? But these all tie together so much that you can see how to be, to be um, arbitrary is also not to be loving. It's also not to be holy. So they all tie together because they all are attributes of love. Okay? Like I said, the very basic, simple idea, love. Okay, now, um, number four. I've got numbers here and letters there. <laughs> Doesn't help any. Mercy. Or, as it's commonly translated, loving kindness. We have to be careful when we read loving kindness to not read it as an emotion because it's translated from the word that is mercy which means, which means to receive something or to not receive something from God that we deserve to receive. Mercy. That is um, an attitude, uh, not an attitude, but a choice towards us that if we go into rebellion that he would want to bring us back to himself, the choice to try to bring us in every way that he can back to himself and to try to find a way to release us from the uh, penalty of our sin that we deserve to have. So a simple way to keep grace and mercy separate is grace is receiving something that you don't deserve and mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve and mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. That is, the negative aspect. Yes, the negative aspect. If you do deserve to be praised or rewarded or whatever, God will do that. <laughs> In his justice. Okay? So, we have to be careful with the word loving kindness. It's a wonderful word, loving kindness. I like it. But... Um, but we must remember that his loving kindness is in the sense that he tries to bring people back to himself and restore them in order that they might have a relationship with him. He tries to find a way to get them released from the penalty that they deserve, that they actually deserve to have in order that they can come back to him. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. And also his blessing can be too. The goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe the maybe the same word. I don't know that that was the reason Paul used the word. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't checked out the Subjugion on that, so never felt uh, any need to, I guess. Never came up. 
if you want to write me out, you know, 15-page report on it, and I'll be glad to have the information. <laughs> That's what I should do. I should get students and SOEs to do my running down all my scripture references and looking up all the Greek and everything for me. It's nice having, there's a guy at the farm that knows both Hebrew and Greek. My wife knows Hebrew, so there's this guy that knows Greek really well, and I just, I, I pick his brain all the time. <laughs> hey, you want to see, see something? It's just off to the side. I'm going to show you a verse that this guy showed me in, in, uh, in the Hebrew. It's in uh, first, Second Thessalonians 2.13 uh, in the Greek. Did I say Hebrew? Oh, sorry. Greek. Second Thessalonians 2.13. says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And the words, from the beginning, is actually this in the Greek text, aparche, which means first fruits. And it is God has chosen you as first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And in some of the later manuscripts, this word got divided into two. Up. Meaning, from the beginning. But the word is actually first fruits. And it got divided later, and so it got translated from the beginning. I thought that might uh, be interesting to you since we were talking about foreknowledge last night. He has chosen you as first fruits, not he has chosen you from the beginning. He said, he said, when I was reading that in the Greek, he translates, you know, a chapter of Greek a day or Hebrew or whatever to stay in practice. And he said, so when I ran across this, I thought of you. Because <laughs> he, he still uh, is battling in his head with whether or not God has foreknowledge. So. <laughs> okay. That's a, if it's way off the subject, that's okay. We'll <laughs> Wait till later. Okay. So, this is the, the activity of God. Mercy is the activity of God in which he, he makes every effort, extends every, um, uh, every bit of, well, effort to try to bring us to a place where he can justly release us from the penalty of the law which we really deserve to have. Mercy. Okay? Now, we're going through these things mentally and we're talking about some of the definitions and stuff, but... Uh, it's when you get in everyday contact with the Lord that you begin to find out what these things are really like. You find out what His mercy is like when you've sinned. <laughs> you see? And you've been forgiven by God. You begin to find out really what mercy is all about. And, uh, etc. Find out about His justice. Um, let me read you something here. I was going to write this to Liz, and I think I... It was so long... It was so long coming that I just didn't send you the note. Um, but the Lord blessed me with this on the, on the train back to, um, or back to Holland last time. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, He waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. 
Isn't that neat? And it's, the whole thing is, he longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you because he is just. And many times we think of justice as being um, the judgment side of God. You see? But it says here that he longs to have, he's waiting to be compassionate towards you. He longs to be gracious to you because he is just. And it's just, it's in, in um, 1 John it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Forgiveness, compassion, uh, being gracious to us are a part of his justice just as much as his judgment is. You see? That's part of his justice too. And so we think of God as, God is just as being a stern type thing. That's wrong. Because justice also has compassion, grace, forgiveness. That's part of justice too. Because when you put yourself in the place where God justly can forgive you, then he is moved by his justice to forgive you. See? What's that? Where? Oh, where's this? <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's um, Isaiah 30, 18. I was going to give you verses 18 to 22. <laughs> the Lord blessed me with it, and it seemed to be related to the problems we were talking about. Liz and I were discussing the fact that we had the same problems. And she found out that I was having the same hassle she was having, and so we cried on each other's shoulders and prayed about it. Okay. Now, um... Yes, yes, let's go on. Number five. Wisdom. Wisdom is a part of God's moral attributes. Part of God's moral attributes. Now, we discuss knowledge under part of God's natural attributes. Okay? Knowledge is under part of God's natural attributes. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about what it is. Okay. Wisdom is the loving use of knowledge towards other moral beings. The loving application of what you know in order to help for the highest well-being of another being is wisdom. And God not only commands us to be knowledgeable, He also commands us to be wise. And that's why it also says, you see, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Why? Because if you're loving, you'll apply your knowledge properly to minister to other people and to serve them and to heal them and be compassionate towards them. And you'll take your knowledge and you'll use it properly and you'll build them up by your wisdom rather than tearing them down with your knowledge. Okay? Knowledge all by itself is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. God sandwiches it in in um, 2 Peter. He makes a little sandwich out of it and to, to cushion it, keep it from getting away, running away with itself. Uh, 2 Peter 1 um, Five and six. I won't read all of it. I'll read five, six, and seven. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, 
and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness or affection, Christian love. And he takes knowledge and he puts it between moral excellence and self-control. See? So dangerous that he, he cushions it on one side with moral excellence. And he says, unless you're morally excellent, in other words, unless you're virtuous, unless you're holy, then you've got to be careful with knowledge. And on the other side, once you're, once you're virtuous and have knowledge, then he says, now you've got to express self-control. See? And he sandwiches knowledge in with self-control and moral excellence. So that he has you holy and in control of yourself before you use knowledge. Nice uh, cushion there that he's put to knowledge. Knowledge all by itself is very dangerous. You're very destructive. So knowledge builds up, but knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So in wisdom, God always uses all of his knowledge. Whenever he uses his knowledge, he uses it for the building up of other people. He uses it for their well being for their highest well-being and um, sometimes we'll have in the in the body of Christ you'll see a word of knowledge or a prophecy or something like that operated which um, which embarrasses or hurts or exposes someone else in an unnatural and an unloving fashion and it doesn't build them up but tears them down and that is not wisdom you see? that is not wisdom when you receive a word of knowledge from the Lord, you also have to pray then, well, how do I use it now? Because we're supposed to be wise, too. <laughs> it's one thing to receive a word of knowledge. It's another thing to use it properly. It's another thing. If it's not used for the upbuilding of someone else, then it's not going to be used that way just to keep your little mouth shut. <laughs> Excuse my bluntness, but I've seen some people very, very hurt from a word of knowledge used with, uh, uh, apart from love. No, no, well, well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, using our using our using the resources of the earth properly so that we don't destroy it would be considered wisdom. Yeah. Okay, yeah. For the highest well-being. Well, using it in love, and love, of course, encompasses towards God and the universe. Okay. Yes. Oh. Truthfulness. Truthfulness. God is truthful. Now this is both wonderful and scary. You know what I mean? God is truthful because he will tell you the truth about yourself. And sometimes the truth about yourself can be pretty scary, you see. If God weren't handling the situation, it would be very scary. You see? Um, but if you ask God to show you your heart, he will tell you truthfully what it is like. You see? Now that's very wonderful of him to do that so that we can be healed, but sometimes it can be a bit scary. 
Um, I've had many, many, many times where I was afraid to just expose my heart to the Lord because I knew that he was going to do it if I let him. <laughs> he was going to be truthful and he was going to tell me exactly what I was like and I was going to go, you see? And so I became afraid and I didn't want to expose my heart to the Lord. And one time I was really afraid and I got together with a group of leaders and I said, would you please pray for me because I'm very afraid to let the Lord expose my heart and I know that I need it. I know that he wants to speak to me about something, but I'm afraid to let him do it. I'm afraid that it's going to hurt. And I know that it's, uh, I'm going to end up better off at the end. It's going to be loving. He's going to treat me kindly and so forth. I, but it's still, I'm, I'm scared silly. You know? And so they prayed for me. And right after they prayed for me, a verse popped into my mind. I think it's Galatians 4.16, something like that. And I opened it up. It's a very short verse. It says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I told you the truth? I went, uh, well, no, God. <laughs> you know? yeah. What I was doing in my attitude was considering him an enemy because he told me the truth. You see? And I had no, that, was, that wasn't just, that wasn't fair at all. To say that he was my enemy simply because he always told me the truth. That wasn't any, any way to respond to him. So, um, I thought I'd throw that out for some of you that might be scared sometimes to let God expose your heart. <laughs> that there are other people around who've been scared too. <laughs> you know, but uh, it's wonderful to let the Lord expose us and let him break us. And, and you know, the, the, I found out something about the fi fire of God. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I found out something about the fire of God. If you submit, the fire of God burns sin and it warms you. Have I already told you this? If you submit, the fire of God burns sin out of your life and warms you. If you resist, it burns you. Because it goes straight to your conscience. Not that God is vindictive, because He wants to love you. And that's what He's trying to do when He convicts you, or speaks to you, or brings the fire of God into your life. But if you resist, it goes straight to your conscience, because you know you shouldn't. So we don't have to be afraid of the fire of God as long as we're willing to submit. Because all it's going to do is warm us and heal us and help us. And sure, it's going to burn sin, but that needs to go anyway. Who wants to hang on to that? Okay, wisdom. God always applies his knowledge in love. That's wisdom. Oh, we weren't talking about wisdom. We were talking about truthfulness. <laughs> you can tell, tell where I am, man. I'm, well, they're all interrelated anyway. <laughs> Use that as an excuse. Anyway, um, truthfulness, yes. God, it's scary. That's what we were talking about. Scary sometimes. Yeah, for God, for God to be, for God to be truthful with us. But it's also very wonderful that God is truthful. Everything that He communicates is true. He created the universe in such a way that it communicates truly to us. He communicate. He He created us in such a way that we, as as long as we are normal, you know, if we're not sticking something into our heads that makes us perceive it improperly, like drugs. As long as we are normal, he has, he has created us in such a way that we will perceive truthfully. Okay? He communicates to us in the Scripture truthfully, not exhaustively, but whatever he communicates is true. Never makes a deceitful or underhanded or any other kind of communication. Never. It's always true. Sometimes it can be scary. Sometimes you might not want to hear it, but it's always truthful. Okay. And lastly here, Number seven, we have faithfulness. 
Now, some theologians will take, um, Christian theologians will take faithfulness, and they have a, a toss, it's a toss-up, you know, with most theologians as to whether it's a natural attribute or a moral attribute. Um, but it would appear to me that, that, just as I thought about it, that if faithfulness was something that was moral, we wouldn't be able to get excited about it. I mean, if it was metaphysical, we wouldn't be able to get excited about it. The fact that God did not change. But what we get excited about in God's faithfulness is that his choices towards us are always consistent. That's what we get excited about when we talk about faithfulness. His choice to provide for us, his choice to forgive us, his choice to uh, protect us, his choice to comfort us, his choice to watch over us is always consistent. He's faithful in that. It is to be completely consistent in his moral choices. To be completely consistent in his moral choices. When, the, when it says in uh, Malachi, I am the Lord and do not change, I change not. Therefore, sons of Israel, you are not consumed. You see? He's talking about a moral thing there. That he does not change. That is, he's always gracious and kind. He's always compassionate. He's always just. And that, for that reason, the children of Israel weren't completely wiped out. That's why you weren't consumed. Okay? So when it says, I am the Lord, I change not, it's talking about, it, it, he's consistent in his moral attributes. It's not talking about his, um, he's some static being in the universe, you know. <laughs> Nothing ever changes in God. It's talking about, I am the, when he says, I am the Lord, I change not, he's saying that I always make, I'm always compassionate, I'm always just. Always kind. Talk about his moral attributes. I see question mark written all over your face. Yeah. Well, in that context, he's talking about the blessing that he made Balaam. Um, actually, it's Balaam speaking, but uh, the, bless the blessing that he made Balaam speak. He says, God put a word in Balaam's mouth. We're going to talk about that um, probably tomorrow. But God put a word in Balaam's mouth and made him speak it. At that point, he usurped his free will. And we'll talk about that. He made him speak that. And then he said, God is not a man he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he spoken? Shall I not do it? Has he, whatever, promised, commanded? Shall I not bring it to pass? And uh, he is blessed, and I can't reverse it. So forth. <laughs> Balaam couldn't do anything about it. Every time Balaam opened his mouth to try to curse, out came a blessing. You know, that would be really frustrating. <laughs> try to say one thing, and out comes something else. But, uh, yeah. yeah, praise the Lord. But uh, in that case, it was, God is not a man that he should lie about the blessing that he had pronounced. Uh, neither the son of man that he should repent. He's not going to change his mind about the blessing that he pronounced on Israel. You see, because about that time, the guy that hi hired him, who was it? Balak? That hired him? Balak was getting pretty upset because he, he hired him to curse the children of Israel, you know? And every time he goes up there to curse, he pours out this blessing. And Balak goes, what are you doing? And Balaam says, well, God's not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. You know, he's blessed, and I'm sorry, I can't reverse it. No, not, concern, not concerning the that particular blessing. No, because that, that had to do with God's uh, movement in history with the nation of Israel. And that wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a conditional thing. It was his action in history with the nation. Like, they will not be numbered amongst the nations. They will be this, that, and the other. And they were all unconditional things based on his activity. They were different things. Like with the covenant at Sinai, that was conditional. See, whether or not whether or not God dealt with the nation was unconditional. Whether or not a person who was in the nation was saved was conditional as to whether or not he kept the covenant. You could be a good Jew and go to hell. You're not good in the sense of morally, but you could be 
uh, you know, Hebrew first amendment. Anyway, <clears throat> yes, you're hearing about that, I think, in the afternoons. You heard about that yet? Yeah, you be, be, be a Jew and go to hell too. Imagine the Pharisees didn't like that when Jesus said that. Oof. Okay, faithfulness then is when God is consistent in the choices. And he is consistent. And he's consistent to provide. He's consistent to keep his promises towards us. He's consistent to be loving. He's consistent to be merciful when, when we've sinned. And, you know, when he says to us, um, if, if your brother comes to you seven times in a day and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. And he says, that's how, that's how, how forgiving and how loving we are to be. One time I had sinned against the Lord and I was very, very deeply grieved that I would grieve the Lord like that. And I was talking to the Lord and I said, Lord, I just ask you to forgive me and have mercy on me. And, he, and this is very clearly, he said this, if you come to me seven times in a day and say, I repent, I will forgive you. you know? But he's not any less loving and kind than he's asked us to be. And uh, so if he commands us to be that way, then he must be that way as well. Yeah. And if we come to him seven times in a day and say, I repent, he will forgive us. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to keep his promises. He's also faithful to discipline us. He's faithful to discipline us. Yeah? Amen. I think we'll... Um, yeah, really messed him up in the sound room. We're going to stop.